You already know that if you need a car wash, you need to go to Tommy's Express Car Wash. They've got all the tools and expertise to keep your car clean, both inside and on the outside. You want it clean inside because if anybody gets in your car, they're not going to want it look like a pigsty. Plus, you're going to want it clean of all those germs. You want it clean on the outside because if you're going to be pulling up in somebody's neighborhood, maybe going to see a friend, they're going to see the outside of your car and go, wow. This guy, he knows what he's doing with his car washes. That's because Tommy's Express Car Wash is going to take care of you. Their wash packages let you pay for the services you want, including Tommy Guard and Body Wax. That's right. Have it looking real spiffy. Wheel cleaning and tire gloss, underbody flush, and spot-free rinse and vacuums as well. If you're like me, you have a dog. I have a golden retriever. She sheds so much. So I need the vacuums at Tommy's Express Car Wash, and boy, do they have them. They do them right. That's wash, rinse, repeat with Tommy's Express Car Wash. And don't forget to download the Tommy Club app today and enjoy endless washing for one low price. That's at Tommy's Express Car Wash. We got a lot of different things coming at you today, okay? And I'm just sensing a little bit of a lull right now. F that. You don't got time to say. All right, let's go. Break it. Break it, Glenn Cross. Woo! Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Nick Schwert and Derek Johnson on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Kansas football introduced a thing today, a new, uh, what I would imagine is going to become a tradition for the program. Their first ever, quote, guy of the week has been handed out to Miles Kendrick, quarterback Miles mm. Kendrick. Been around the program for a while. Guy of the week, though, sounds a little bit familiar mm. because just two weeks ago mm. on this show, we debuted our very own new bit yes, we did. that we expect to become a longstanding tradition. Nick, what was the name of that bit? The name of that bit, Derek, was Cool Guy of the Week. Mm. Cool guy of the week. Mm-hmm. See, that's how you get away with stealing an idea. You tweak it. That's what Vanilla Ice did, right? He took Queens under pressure, and he changed the beat just a little bit. Din 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 din, and he added he added that tick at the end, right? Mm-hmm. Listen, I think imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. No, we, we have to sue KU football. We I don't think, know exactly what. what well, hell, I mean, David Beatty sued KU football, and he won. <laughs> it was a long legal battle that raged on. We don't know what, what Miles Kendrick did to deserve Guy of the Week. That much I don't like. I, I would like a little bit more right. transparency there. But, uh, yeah, man, that's, that's kind of rough. It's kind of rough seeing that seeing that pop crop. So if they're going to give today. a guy of the week and we're going to give a cool guy of the week, I think we should have a battle. Dude, I'll be honest. I'll just I'll settle out of court if they want to buy the idea from us. Deal. Yes. How much? How much would you want? Ten thousand dollars. I was thinking less. So, but they have so much money. Not right now. Yeah, but ten, ten grand though. Ten grand for a. An athletic program. I'll take one thousand, but Bill Self has to sign the check to me personally. It's a football thing. Oh yeah. Uh, so Leipold, nice yeah. Leipold can sign the check to you. 
probably doesn't make you feel quite as good. Hey, I have a, a little blind resume test. You love blind resumes. Oh, yeah. So I'm going to give you one. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I think these are stupid. No, they're all stupid. That's why I love them. Well, I think they're stupid when you're trying to compare two like, athletes that don't need to be compared. You know what I mean? And so I'll, I'll give you the blind resume. Okay. Go into it with an open mind. And then afterward, I want you to tell me whether or not you think it's an apt comparison. Okay? Mm-hmm. All right. Two players. Player A and player B. And these are college basketball players. I'm going to give you their stats. Are they active college basketball players? Active okay. college basketball players. I'm going to give you their stats from last season, but we're going to use a timeline here. I'm going to give you their stats dating back to February 1st. One is David McCormick. Let me get to the numbers first. February 1st. So about the last month and a half of the season. Okay. Player A averaged 18 points per game, averaged assist and a half, shot 40% from three on over five and a half attempts per game. Okay. Player B averaged 20 points per game, three assists, and shot 38% from three on eight and a half attempts per game. So across the board, the volume a little bit higher there for player B. 20 points to 18, three assists to one and a half. Um, but the shooting, the the three-point shooting a little bit down, but he was taking more attempts per game. Player A, if, you wanna, if, you want, if you're an advanced statistics person, player A had a 28% usage rate, had a 10% turnover percentage, and a 2.7% steal rate. Player B had a 31% usage rate, so higher usage, 14% turnover percentage, so significantly higher turnover rate. And a 1.6 steal rate did not produce nearly as many steals. I gave you the numbers. Which one of those players would you take? Mm. Actually, that's not even the question I want to ask. Not which one would you take. I've given you the numbers for both of those players. What's your takeaway from how those two players stack up against one another? Very similar. Very similar. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Their numbers are almost indistinguishable from yeah, one another. They're very similar. It's just one had, you know, a little more usage. than the Okay. Other. I'm going to change the sample size a little bit. So I gave you the numbers from February 1st on. So about the last math, month and a half of the season. I'm going to chop off a couple of weeks there. I'm going to go just since February 15th. So the last month of the season. Because the NCAA tournament started in the second week of March. So four weeks of basketball. Player A, same two players. Player A, 23 points per game. Two assists, shot 47% from three on seven attempts per game. So, high volume, high efficiency. Player B, 19 points per game, three assists, shot 40% from three on seven attempts per game. So, both of them, high volume, high efficiency, except for player A's efficiency is just otherworldly, right? Is player A... I'm not done yet. Player A had a slightly higher usage rate. Slightly lower turnover percentage, slightly higher steal, steal rate, okay? So 23 points versus 19, 47% from three versus 40%. Both, again, you would probably agree, 
pretty indistinguishable from one another. And if you're saying I would take this guy over that guy, you're still saying I'd love to have both of them, right? Correct. I'd love to have either one of them. Can I guess who they are now? You can guess who they are. Player A is Joe Yesifu. He is. Player B is Remy Martin. He is. Oh, yeah. Good job, Derek. I swear, you did not tell me this before the show. No, I didn't. Remy Martin is a two-time All-Pac-12 selection. He is believed by many across the college basketball landscape. If you go and read any of the, you know, the college basketball transfer ratings as the number one transfer on the open market or one of the top two or three guys on the open market, KU landed him. And you think that that significantly vaults them up the 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 power rankings of college basketball for next year? That he would immediately become one of the favorites to win Big Twelve Player of the Year, maybe a fringe All American candidate. Today, Joe Yesifu was at the Brett Ballard Washburn basketball camp, spoke to some media members, was asked what position Bill Self informed him he wants to see him play next year at Kansas, and without hesitating. Yesifu said, oh, I'm playing point guard. He wants me to be a point guard. Joe Yesifu became the starting point guard with seven games to go in Drake's season. They had a player go down with an injury. He stepped in. He was the sixth man. All of a sudden, not just became the starting point guard, but became the catalyst, the go-to guy offensively. And I gave you the numbers. They're quite impressive. 23 points per game, 47% from three. But even before that, coming off the bench, he had started to show signs that he might be one of those dynamic-type players. When KU landed Joe Yesifu, I think a lot of people were pretty excited, thinking that you do have a dynamic, scoring, shot-making point guard that you have just added from the transfer portal. When you added Remy Martin, though, it was a little bit different. With Joe Yesifu, it's like, we'll see how he fits in. With Remy Martin, it was, this is your starting point guard. Now, it's just one guy's comments. He said he wants me to play the point, so we'll see what actually ends up happening. You can have multiple point guards on the court at once. My question for you is, should we be giving more thought to the idea that Joe Yesifu could be that alpha, that all-conference type addition that you've made at the guard spot? Not to take anything away from Remy. But over the past month and a half, past month of the season, they were very comparable players. And you can say, well, one was high major, one was playing at Drake. Drake was a better team. Unquestionably, Drake was a better team than than Arizona State was. Arizona State was abysmal. They were an 11-win team last year. Drake went to the NCAA tournament, won a game against Wichita State in the play-in, and in the second game against USC, Joe Yesifu goes off for 26 points over USC, the same team that blew Kansas out of the gym. Is it simply pedigree? Is it the fact that he's made two All-Pac-12 teams? Is it the name recognition? Is it the fact that he's got four years of experience under his belt? Versus Joe Yesifu, just a sophomore. He was only a part-time starter last year. I get it that the sample size for Yesifu isn't there quite as much as Remy Martin. But we can go back and look at the guys who were putting up numbers better than Joe Yesifu at the end of the season. And I'll tell you two things. It's a very short list. And you would recognize every single name that I threw out there. Anybody who you think played better 
Like, you're talking about Cameron Thomas, LSU, Max Abmus of Oral Roberts, Buddy Beheim, Sam Hauser, Drew Timmy, Luke Garza, Matthew Hurt, Macy Oteague, Quentin Grimes, Austin Reeves, Davian Mitchell. Like, those are the guys. That, that's the list of guys who were playing better than Joe Yesifu to end the season. And it feels like he's almost an afterthought. I mean, Jeff Porzello of ESPN, this one guy. But Jeff Porzello, who was constantly updating his top transfers, didn't even have Joe Yesifu in the top 100. Yet he had Remy Martin number one. We know that there's not that much of a gap that exists there. I'm asking how much of, of one does exist. I, I don't understand, unless you just don't believe the sample size, why there's all this hype for Remy, which I think is deserved, but yet Yesifu's sort of a footnote for the offseason for KU. It is the sample size. Um, I could give you a comparison, like, again, like what you were saying. Some of these are silly with these player comps, the blind resume things. I could do the same thing that you just did with a comparison between Malik Newman and Devontae Graham in 2018. Over the last month and a half of the season. Over the last month of the season. And you know who would come out favorably there? Malik Newman. You know who was the better player over the long haul? Devontae Graham. So, and I'm not saying it's fake. I'm not saying it's real either. I'm just saying when it's a short sample size, you have to be wary of it. So, Joe Yesifu might come in, and you know what? If you told me he led the team in scoring, I wouldn't be shocked. But also... I no, but that's not really what it is. There. Yeah, of course. If you're just to tell me what's who's most likely to be a standout player for KU, of course you would take Rim. And, that, and that's the thing. I did the, the player comparison, and I'm not doing the player comparison to say which one is better or to argue that Joe Yesifu is better. I use the player comparison to say everybody, and I gave you the guys on the list, Eric. They're all legit dudes who don't surprise you. They're all guys who, if they are playing college basketball next year, you're going to expect them to be some of the best players in college basketball. Like, I literally went through the list of guys who were putting up comparable numbers, better numbers, over the last month of the season than Yesifu. And not one of them, I mean, I, I, I listed them all off, not one of them was a guy like, oh, well, he just got hot. All right, like, uh, he was just kind of... He was cruising near the end of the season, but I wouldn't expect him to come back and do that again next year. You wouldn't say that about any of the guys. And most of those guys are gone. Most of those guys are going to go play in the NBA next year, or at least attempt to go play in the NBA next year. So to me, there's a breaking point. It's like, okay, did you get hot for a couple of games? All right, you did it for a month and a half. For a month and a half, you averaged 18 points per game. I get it. It's a small sample size smaller than a guy who did it for two straight seasons at Arizona State. But I'm not saying this guy's going to be better than that guy. I'm saying this guy's still going to be really, really good. And the the, the answer that he gave today about I'm going to play the point or Bill Self told me he wants me to play the point, it makes me wonder what role realistically should we be envisioning for Yesifu next year? Because I know a lot of people believe that Bill Self is going to be stubborn to the point of Christian Brown still being in the starting lineup and playing 25 to 30 minutes a game, which uh, may be right. But Yesifu coming into Kansas to be a backup point guard doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to me because I feel like he very clearly is a starting caliber point What if guard. I told you, though, it was like a backup point guard role in the form of Sharon Collins in 2008, 2007, too? Right? A guy who was coming off the bench, but he was closing games for you. 
He was playing 25 minutes a game. And he was just kind of that electric, small, athletic guard off the bench that could score in a hurry. And then eventually, a year later, when Mario Chalmers is gone, when Remy Martin is gone, he fills into the starting spot. That would make sense if... But there were two guys ahead of Sharon. There were two point guards. KU was playing two point guards that year. It was Mario and Russ, and Sharon was the third point guard. That's not really the case that we're looking at this season. If he's coming off the bench, it's because KU isn't playing two point guards. So well, that could happen, but, but, I don't know if he, but I don't know if he's necessarily competing with... Like, they, like him and Brown aren't the same player, but they're going to be competing for minutes, Like if that makes any sense. Not necessarily competing for the same role, but it's more about, is Yesufu going to be good enough for Bill Self to say, I'm going all in once again on two guards? Because we know it's not going to take much. I, he likes doing that. And if that's the disposition that you know Bill Self has tended to go to before, why wouldn't we be of the belief today that, well, you got two point guards, yeah. so... It's probably going to end up happening. I think it's just a semantics thing. Like I said, like I think Joe Yesufu, regardless if he's starting or being that six-man role I just defined, like you're looking at 25 to 30 minutes a game, right? So whether he's starting or Christian Brown's starting, I think you're still playing a lot of Joe Yesufu and Remy Martin together. I don't really think it matters if he starts or not. It, I, I view him as being one of the closers to the team. So from that standpoint, I think him and Remy Martin, yes, that will be the backcourt. I just think he provides more. I think he provides more than Christian Brown does in terms of, of scoring. And I think there are going to be specific like individual scenarios where like if Remy is is having an off game for whatever reason, like it may just be one of Joe's nights. Like I really do envision this as a Frank Mason Devontae Graham type backcourt where you have two legitimate guards and on any given night either one of those guys could be that guy. The difference is I don't think there's as big of a gap between Frank and Devontae. Like, as good as Devontae was a senior year and as good as he was as sort of that secondary player as a junior, that was Frank's team. That was unquestionably Frank's team. He was the unanimous national player of the year. I don't think Remy's quite that good. So I think the gap there between Remy and Joe isn't quite as big as the gap in that year. So yeah, I mean, yeah, Sharon played 23, 24 minutes a game in 2008. He did the same thing as a freshman, too. I think that number is a little bit higher for Joe. I think he's playing somewhere between 25 and 30 minutes a game. But I want to have the conversation now so that when it does happen, and he is a guy that you know averages 15, 16 points a game for KU next year, which I think is realistic. I really do. Like I wouldn't be shocked whatsoever if Remy Martin and Joe Yesifu are your two leading scorers. So if it does happen, I want to just be able to say we had the conversation now. So when people say, who saw this coming? We can say, hey, we did. Check the tape. We'll talk more about it with Jesse Newell, Kansas City Star. He's going to join us coming up here in a bit. This is Rock Chuck Sports Talk. Jesse Newell, the Kansas City Star, is going to join him up here in, in just a little bit. Uh, Bet Online, which is one of those offshore uh, bookies, they have released odds concerning aliens and alien contact. You know, Jesse, a couple of weeks ago, came on the show, talked to us about the 60-minute report about these 
uh, former Pentagon officials and Navy pilots who had reported all of these different encounters with UFOs. Told me to watch it, went, watched it, eye-opening, shocking in some cases. Well, now, this is becoming so mainstream now that Bet Online is releasing prop bets for alien-human contact, such as the question of, will there be alien-human contact by the end of 2021? Mm. Plus 2,500 says yes. Okay. Will there be an alien attack in 2021? 100 to 1. 100 lower to 1. Lower than I would like. Much lower than I would like. Conversely, who would win an alien-human war? <laughs> Humans at minus 150 I love this. versus aliens at plus 110. That's shocking, right? Why are we, we favored? We're favored. Yeah. Home turf, home field advantage. You think so? Home field advantage is worth three points. But obviously, if they're an alien species, they have the technology to go to from get wherever to our they home. are to get here. We so can't like, find them. Yeah. And not only are they finding us, they're taunting us. They're coming into our <laughs> atmosphere and just like, you, boo-boo, you'll never get me. Um, if we, if you bet on humans and then they, or if you bet on aliens and then they win. <laughs> you think you're getting that money? Yeah. I mean, I would assume whoever's running the sports book's probably been pulverized. Uh, does You've probably been pulverized. Does the alien, do the aliens, do they honor bets that were placed before the war, or do they just abandon the sports book? Well, if the algorithm's in the online account, then maybe you just get it anyway. But, like, is there any chance that the aliens win a war? If they come to Earth and they attack Earth, they are clearly being aggressive. Is there any chance they win the war without killing everyone? I, I feel like it would be a swift victory for the aliens, don't you? Yes. Again, if they have the technology to get out here, they clearly have some, like, space beams. I, and, yeah, space beam, a laser beam that just, yeah. like, pew, and then you're done. Right. But I don't even think the aliens would come here to take over our planet. I think they would just blow the whole thing up. Just What do we do to them? Posed a threat? I don't know. I don't know what they want. We don't know what they want. We don't know what they care about, if they fear us, anything. Uh, I'm going to go home and watch Arrival tonight. Mm. Maybe that'll give pick me up some of that alien language. Yeah, maybe, maybe that'll, that'll give me some some insights. Did you see this on there too? Who's the favorite to be the first abduction by an alien, like celebrity wise? You think they're going to try to abduct celebrities? Maybe take them hostage. I mean, if if what people assume is at Area Fifty One, we technically have abducted one of theirs. Maybe. Yeah, but I don't think it was a celebrity. It could be for them. Why could is be this, like the Elvis Presley they, of why, aliens. Why do they have celebrities doing recon work for them on foreign planets? Because they thought that we would be an advanced species that we would know about them. That's how famous he is. He's like famous in his entire galaxy. So he figured, mm. I'll be the one to extend a hand out to these people like, hello. And then we took him hostage and now we're screwed. The aliens are coming. I'm going to post some of these prop bets to... To Jesse when he joins us coming up here in a bit. Before we do that, though, uh, something to note that happened near the tail end of our show yesterday. We've been talking for a couple of weeks now, and this 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 is becoming much, much bigger, and it feels like it's about to reach a, a boiling point. Spider tack. Foreign substances in Major League Baseball. We talked about the batting averages numbers are as low as they've ever been. The spin rates for pitchers are as high as they've ever been. 
they, they pulled up an interview of Trevor Bauer back from 2018 where he's got this machine at his house and he's just trying out different substances on baseballs to receive the highest spin rate. And what he found was spider tech, which you can buy for $36 on Amazon. Nine ounce container is the best foreign substance to use. It is made for powerlifting, for like the big boulder lifting that they do at these weightlifting competitions. You know, they put it on their arms and it helps them better grip these giant boulders that they're trying to move. That is becoming a new favorite for Major League Baseball pitchers because of the spin rate that it produces. Garrett Cole is the best pitcher in baseball. Well, he's certainly the highest paid pitcher in baseball for the New York Yankees. He was asked a very straightforward question yesterday about spider tack. The exchange is must listen. And have you ever used spider tack while pitching? Um, I don't. I don't know. I I, I don't know if. Uh, I don't know quite. I don't quite know how to answer that. To be honest. Um, I mean. There are customs and practices that have been passed down from older players to younger players, from the last generation of players to this generation of players. And, um, you know, I, I think, uh, I think there are some things that are certainly out of bounds in that regard. And, and, uh, I've stood pretty, stood pretty firm in, in terms of that, uh, in terms of the communication between our peers and whatnot. Um, you know, and, and I, again, like I mentioned earlier, there's, you know, this is important to a lot of people that love the game. And this is including, including the players in this room, including fans, including, you know, teams. And so if MLB wants to, you know, legislate some more stuff, that's a conversation that we can have um, because ultimately we should all be pulling in the same direction on this. I would hate to hear Garrett Cole's wife question him if he's been cheating on her. Garrett, uh, you didn't get home till 4 a.m. last night. Where were you? Uh, 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 I don't know. I don't know how to answer that question. You know, it's a serious question. It's a good. I mean, it's this is a serious issue. I feel like we should both be rooting for the same things in this relationship. That's the worst press conference performance I've heard in quite some time. It's not often you hear somebody sound that flustered in front of a microphone. Somebody who was prepared to be in front of a microphone that day. Images of Jeff Long come to mind. Mm. Listening to Garrett Cole. Yeah, can we re-listen to that like first line? Because it's very similar. And have you ever used spider attack while pitching? Um, in what regard? <laughs> Get, out. Get out of here, Jeff. Nobody invited you, Jeff. <laughs> It's like the inability to think just a few seconds ahead as to what, you know, might come out of his mouth next. Like the, the inability to think that you're the highest paid pitcher. This is a there's, <laughs> this is a debate raging on, and and Garrett Cole never for one moment considered the idea that someone may ask him about the biggest topic in baseball. You know, we can, you can, we can rag on Garrett Cole, and we should. That's funny. He sounded terrible. But 
the fact that Garrett Cole is the one having to answer this question is a little bit silly. Because clearly the answer is yes, Garrett Cole has used spider tech. And he couldn't decide on the moment there whether or not he should fess up or not. Because Major League Baseball has put pitchers in this precarious situation where they're the ones who are having to answer for an issue that is above their heads. You heard there at the tail end when he said, well, it's a conversation we can have. If, if baseball wants to legislate that, that's a conversation we can have. Not really. The players don't have say in that. Rob Manfred could come down tomorrow. Major League Baseball could come down tomorrow and say all of this stuff is banned and this is the type of penalty it comes with. There is no collective bargaining for using foreign substances and doctoring the baseball because whether it was spider tack or rosin or sunscreen, like this has been around for a long time before it enters the public conscience. And it is once again the inaction of baseball that has led to this becoming something bigger than it probably should be. Jesse Newell, Kansas City Star, going to join the show coming up next. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk. All right, so Bet Online, you go to betonline.com and you can find these prop bets for alien contact. We weren't a big alien show, at least as of late. We hadn't been talking about it. Much that was until a few weeks ago when Jesse Newell came on and took it upon himself to introduce uh, the alien conversation into our little bubble. And since then, it has raged on. And now we've got prop bets. You can actually wager on human alien contact. Jesse Newell, Kansas City Star, joins us now on the show. Jesse, I'm going to throw some prop bets for you. I'm going to throw them your way. Um, I know you're familiar with, uh, with gambling terms. I don't know how much you've delved into these sorts of prop bets. So I'm going to throw some alien prop bets at you and see what you go with. Are you game? Yeah, yeah, I guess my first question before we get started, um, does it have like an, a deadline or an end date? You know what I'm saying? Like, well, some of these does are... this have to happen in 2021? Cause otherwise yeah. it's like, they're just going to be sitting bets. You yeah. Know? Some like, of right? these are, some of these are, are, uh are time-stamped for the end of the year. Yeah, most of them are 2021, or not most. There's a couple that are 2021, and then there's some that are uh, 2024. Okay. I just wanted to know that. Otherwise, you'd pass this on to your great-great-grandchildren to uh, make sure that bet online right, is, right, right. Uh, you know, on the up and up. You know. Okay, so here's the first prop bet, Jesse. Will there be ha- alien-human contact confirmed by the end of 2021, yes is plus 2,500. <laughs> uh, you're asking me which side I'm taking? Yeah. Or, uh, uh, yeah, I'm taking the no. Yeah. Uh, no. Whatever yeah, 25 that is. to 1 seems. Whatever. Yeah, yeah, 25 to 1 seems in, insanely high. Um, this one seems even higher to me. Will there be an alien attack in 2021? Yes is 100 to 1. Well, here's the problem, Nick, and I'm starting to see the problem with this. These are bets you do not want to pay out. You know what I mean? Right. Like, if, if, you're, if you're bragging to your friends that you won the 100 to 1 bet while your house is getting vaporized by aliens, <laughs> that's, that's not a good bet. So uh, I will go with no again, because for all of our sakes, I hope that that is a no. Okay. Um, 
first country to be attacked by aliens. The USA is the favorite at 10 to 1, followed by Greenland at 11 to 1. So I don't know exactly. Is that where Stonehenge is? Or is that England? That's not, it's not in Greenland. Maybe it's Greenland's mostly like ice. So maybe it's just that they're going to take over an uninhabited part of the world. Um, would you, would you take USA at 10 to one or would you like a value pick down the line? Maybe like an Australia at 25 or, or United Kingdom at 33. Uh, yeah, this one doesn't make as much sense to me. Um, you know, I think the United States probably deserves it, <laughs> but um, I'd probably just go with the biggest landmass, right? I mean, it's probably just going to be pretty random. So, where's where's China at on the board? That's probably the value pick, right? Uh, yeah, China comes in at twenty-five to one. I like that pick too. Yeah, I mean, it's just the most land. You know, mm-hmm. you just there you go. Okay, so here we go. So, uh, first alien abduction. <laughs> Elon Musk is the favorite at 14 to 1. Uh, then you've got uh, Joe Rogan, Donald Trump, Tyson Fury, oddly enough, the boxer, at 16 to 1. You can get the golfer, Bryson DeChambeau, at 33 to 1. Again, I don't know what this is for, for some of these guys. You've got uh, Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, who's actually about to go to space. Maybe he'll be doing the abducting himself at 20 to 1. He might be an alien. Yeah. If, if you were an alien... Because you could probably go off the board with this. If you were an alien species coming to Earth, like, and you got to just sort of survey everything that, that we have to offer, what would you gravitate towards? What, 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 person, what type of person would you want to take with you back to your homeland? That, that's, a, that's a really good question. Which one you'd want to... Um, uh, probably none, right? I mean, the fact that we don't you know. Just vaporize everybody for now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just kill everyone um, and leave. I, I think I used the the comparison earlier. You know, like how we view ants um, is sort of if, if it's happening how the aliens view us. So, mm. um, you know, they're, they're not looking at ants and saying, "Ooh, this looks like the the queen ant. This looks like the ant that is the rock and roll star. This looks like the ant that wants to." send himself into space they're just saying hey they're all ants so i think about it more like i think about it more like honeybees right okay try to find the queen bee even though honeybees are far more organized than humans are um they don't really have as much infighting and bickering and and wars it's a it's a pretty regimented sort of deal there the last prop bet i'll give you and this one's a little morose um who would you take to win the alien human war? It actually has humans as the favorite at minus 150. You can get the aliens at plus 110. Although, again, if the aliens do end up winning, um, I don't know how confident you would be that you would either be around to collect a payout or that you'll actually be able to get that bet honored. Oh, yeah, you're throwing money away. Yeah, I mean, the bet to go with <laughs> is the aliens, absolutely, but you will never get paid out. You, again, once again, you can hang the bet on your wall if you want to and tell your friends about it, but it's not a bet you want to pay out. So, um, I mean, aliens is absolutely the pick, but you'll never get that money. Talking to Jesse Newell, noted alien expert, also KU beat writer for the Kansas City Star. Uh, earlier today, Jesse, Joe Yesifu, a couple of the Jayhawks were at the Brett Ballard-Washburn basketball camp. 
thought it was interesting to hear from Yesifu. He was asked about what position Bill Self had told him he wanted him to play. And he said, sort of without hesitation, point guard, which shouldn't come as a surprise. He is a point guard. But the way that we've talked about him, especially in relation to Remy Martin, has been almost as a secondary ball handler or a second fiddle, knowing that Remy Martin, two-time All-Pac-12 selection, probably one of the favorites to be the Big 12 player of the year as he comes to Kansas. It's It's been interesting how the shift has sort of moved from maybe initially when Yesifu committed to Kansas after transferring from Drake and playing so well at the end of the season. What do you view Joe Yesifu's most realistic role being on next year's team? Yeah, and I was there for that conversation yesterday uh, in Topeka, so I can kind of give a little bit of context to it. I, I do wonder, because what he was asked is um, what coaches what, what positions coaches said he would play. And you have to remember, there's sort of a timeline aspect of this, because when Yesifu committed to Kansas, KU really didn't have a point guard. You know what I mean? Like, he committed before Remy Martin committed. So when he was answering the question, I, I, I didn't ask for clarification. I probably should have, but um, he was being asked what coaches told him that they wanted him to play. And he said point guard without hesitation. But, you know, could they have told him point guard at a time before they got Remy Martin? And now that might shift a little bit because Remy Martin is probably more of a true point guard than Joseph Yesifu is. I think it absolutely could. The bottom line with it is, you know, Bill Self likes to play bigs and littles. He loves having combo guards on the court at the same time. I think you can refer to Yesifu as a combo guard. He's a guy that can bring it up if he needs to, has enough ball handling skills to do so. Um, you know, is he a point guard, point guard in every sense of the term? Probably not. He's more of a scoring point guard in the Frank Mason type of mold. And obviously Kansas made that work when Frank Mason and Devontae Graham both were in the backcourt. And again, could both handle those responsibilities just fine. Both could bring the ball to court. Both could create for themselves, that sort of thing. So I think in Bill Self's system, maybe the official title of it doesn't mean as much. I think Yesifu probably was just, you know, answering the question honestly when KU was first recruiting him and they needed, desperately needed some sort of scoring point guard who could, you know, get off the dribble, you know, get to the hole, create shots for himself, that sort of thing, which they didn't have last year. But either way, um, Bill Self probably wants to play a little faster, wants to have combo guards, wants to have them in there at the same time. So you can definitely envision the scenario where he's able to play alongside Remy Martin and alongside other guys like uh, Christian Brown and then even Ochai Abaji if he comes back. So but that seems to be the role for him, and I wouldn't get caught up too much in the language. He's going to be a guy that brings the ball off the court in transition. He's going to be a guy that's asked to be point guard at times. He's going to be a guy that's asked to play alongside Remy Martin at times, but Bill Self has made these combo guards work before, and surely he'll have the same thing happen coming up this season. Do you view him as being in competition with Christian Brown? You know, it's fascinating. Um, I really, really like Yesifu. I do. I, I, I love his numbers from Drake. I mean, he's super efficient. He can make threes. He can do a lot of things out of pick-and-roll settings. He's not an amazing passer, but the passes he made led to baskets. Um you know, he has a floater game that I talked to him about. You can look for a story on his floaters in the Kansas City Star coming up. That's one I'm working on right now. But um, I, I just keep going back to, and if you guys have an example, then then tell me, because I'm, I'm trying to, to wreck my brain for this. When's the last time that Bill Self had a starter the previous season and that guy did not start the next season? Yeah. I, I just can't think of any examples off the top of my head. So, I would say Christian Brown has the inside track. I think the addition of Remy Martin means that Yesifu most likely would be a six-man type player. But listen, for Drake, what was he? He was a six-man type player. It doesn't really matter that much as long as he gets the minutes and then and gets in there um, and, and can produce at that level. But I, I do think Kansas 
is going to utilize him, and he might be a guy that sort of emerges as the season goes on as well because I think he has a lot of qualities that KU is going to like. And, you know, you, you mentioned talking to him yesterday. It was kind of crazy. I, I had to talk to a KU basketball player face-to-face in about 15 months, so it was <laughs> pretty nice to be able to do that yesterday. And um, he talked about being a leader on and off the court, and, and he has that sort of mentality. You can kind of tell he has a little bit of an air about him that he's been around. He's pretty mature for his age. He's well-spoken, and I think he can serve that sort of role for Kansas coming up this season. Kind of a, a quiet confidence, a little bit like uh, reminiscent a little bit of Devontae Graham, that sort of thing. So we'll see how it turns out, but I think he'll play a major role whether he starts or not. But um, I guess if you're asking me right now, I don't think that that job is going to be taken away from Christian Brown, at least not at the beginning of the season. The only guy that I can think of is Brady Morningstar, I believe. Started in 2009. And then there may have been a redshirt year in there. So I don't know if that necessarily counts. But I believe that there was a a gap there between him starting and then becoming the starter once again in 2011. Does that sound right? Let's see. So 2010, was that when Xavier joined the roster? So he would have yes. taken Xavier's spot? Yes. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that sounds right. Um, but again, that's, we're talking about an incident, an incident a, a situation 11 years ago with Bill Self, <laughs> and we're talking about when KU brought in a legitimate one-and-done lottery-type player to replace um, you know, a role-type player in Brady Morningstar. So... Um, I, I don't think that's the necessarily the situation here. I, I think Yesville will get to compete for that. But um, like I said, I, I just think it, this is kind of the off-season drill, right? I, Nick, I just try to avoid the, the cliche move, which is like, okay, the new guys they brought in are automatically way better than the guys that have already been in the system and been with the program two years. Uh, I, it just, I, I want to see that first. I, I want to be able to, to see that happen in practice. And like I said, Bill Self usually is pretty loyal to the guys that have been here. And I would believe that he has higher expectations for Christian Brown this year, as he should, because he's a junior at Kansas and started last year all the games. So, um, I, I, barring something, you know, barring Yesu coming out and being great and Christian Brown not being maybe himself, I, I just I think it's be really hard to wrangle that spot away from Christian at least to start the season. I think the only reason why I go there, and you can, I know you don't want to go there. Well, I do want to go there. Okay, Christian Brown didn't have a ton of competition for that spot last year. You want to take him out. Like, who was the obvious candidate to put in ahead of him? Now, I'm with you. I I thought Christian Brown was going to take a huge step forward last year, and I'm sure the coaching staff did as well, and it just never really came to fruition. Meanwhile, I, like yourself, am very high on Yesifu, and I think you look at his numbers, I get it, smaller sample size, but the last month, the last month and a half of the season, you're talking about him being one of the elite players in college basketball, and I know what you're going to say. Derek said it to me earlier. It's all about sample size. You can go through the list of guys who were putting up comparable efficiency numbers uh, with that sort of volume, with that sort of usage rate. And all of them are either guys who are going to be on preseason All-American list this year or were so damn good last year that they're not playing college basketball anymore. So it's I know it's a small sample size, but to, to, to the level that he did it, it's really tough to string together those types of performances. He's a guy to me that, yeah, maybe we'll just have to see it play out in practice, and maybe that's what it'll take. But it's just it's tough for me to look at what he did and envision him playing any sort of secondary role. Yeah, and, and I, I agree with you. Like I said, I'm I really like Yesufu. I, I love the advanced numbers. I love 
Uh, you look across the board and be able to shoot threes with that efficiency and some of those coming off the dribble as well in pick-and-roll settings. I mean, again, I mentioned the Devontae Graham comp, but if you're able to do that, that is such a super valuable weapon for a team to have, and it's kind of a get-out-of-jail-free get card when your offense really isn't humming. I mean, if the guy can just step behind a ball screen and make a three, all of a sudden you know, you're ending a lot of droughts before they start. Having said that, I, I do want to avoid the bias of just, you know, we're talking about Yesifu and his best nine games, and then we're sort of, well, you've seen Christian Brown, and so you kind of understand what his limitations are as well. But, I mean, to be completely honest with you, Nick, like if you look at Christian Brown's advanced numbers from last year across the board, he was one of the most impressive Jayhawks. And he's a returning starter, and he's a guy that's going to be a junior, and you can anticipate as guys grow older, they usually get, Better and better. I always use the Frank Mason example, but like Frank Mason couldn't shoot threes early in his career. He had a, a release that took forever, went down to his knees, up to his waist. And by his senior, junior, junior and senior season, he's hitting forty percent of his threes. The same thing I just talked about: stepping behind screens and and making threes. So um, let's talk about what Christian Brown is. I mean, he has toughness. He is a hustle player. He's great on the defensive glass. Plays above his size. There, um, he has good size. He has shown an ability to take difficult three-point shots, even if his accuracy last year was not as good uh, as maybe people anticipated would like. But still, you know, whatever he was, 33%, 34%, that's, that's okay. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I think for him, he does a lot of things fine. You know what I mean? Like, he, he doesn't turn it over that much. His, his advanced stats are pretty good. And most people, if you're looking at that and saying, that's one of your returning stars, and you would anticipate him being a little bit better this year, most people would say, hey, sign me up. That's a, that's a really good player playing at a high major level and showing that he can do that um, in sort of this awkward package. Again, you don't usually get six foot five guys who are a little bit skinny who are great at defensive rebounding and shooting threes. But I think you take the positives that you get with Christian Brown, and if you mold them with some of these other pieces that KU now has in its arsenal, and potentially he doesn't have to do as much on the offensive end. It felt a lot at times that he and Ochai were being stretched too thin. They were trying to do things off the dribble that maybe they're not capable of. Then, again, maybe he can settle into a better role this year that he wasn't as comfortable with last year because there weren't other talented guys around him. So, yes, if can maybe answer some of those questions when he's on the court with Christian, but uh, I'm just not writing him off. I, I think he had a good year last year, maybe better than a lot of people think. And uh, like I said, the statistical package is just a little bit different. So uh, we all do need to appreciate what he does well, which is not um, what most six foot five guards do well. But again, strengths are strengths. And, and that's what he showed last year. He's Jess Newell. You can check out his work in the Kansas City Star at KansasCity.com. Thank you, Jesse. I appreciate it, Nick. All righty. He's Jesse Newell with Derek Johnson. I'm Nick Schwartz. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Support for today's episode comes from Manscaped. Father's Day is just around the corner, and you probably need a gift for a hairy dad. Make your dad proud this year and get him and yourself the Manscaped Lawnmower 4.0 and Ultra Smooth Package. You know what they say, like father, like son. The brand new Lawnmower 4.0 and Ultra Smooth Package is perfect for you and the dad in your life to complete your grooming game. Get 20% off plus free shipping when you use the code RCST at manscaped.com. Step one is the crop exfoliator infused with ingredients that can soothe, clear, and keep the skin on and around your groin feeling refreshed, reducing the risk of ingrown hairs by your delicates. Step two is the crop gel. See where you're shaving with our unique clear shaving gel just for the groin. And step three, it's time to shave. The crop shaver was designed for shaving the groin area with confidence. Three precision blades includes extra wide lubricating strips and a pivoting head for the ultimate groin grooming experience. 
Stop imagining your dad has it covered because he probably doesn't. Get 20% off plus free shipping with the code RCST at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping with the code RCST at manscaped.com. It's dad bod season. Time to get smooth. You can go ahead and mark your calendars. Late Night in the Fog is back. 37th annual Late Night in the Fog is set for Friday, October 1st. Do you think they will have a musical act? The last time we saw a an in-person Late Night in the Fog would have been the infamous Snoop Dogg debacle. Debacle? In what regard? You know, the debacle really was started when... Jeff Long came out and issued the statement afterwards. Because if you remember, the national media sort of poo-pooed on it and talked about how much of a disgrace it was in the face of all the controversy surrounding the basketball program at the time. Yet, the people who were in attendance and most KU fans didn't seem to have a problem with it. In fact, most people who were there thought it was really awesome. So it was only a debacle when Jeff Long decided to make it a debacle. Nonetheless, I I cannot imagine you're going to have a musical act there. If you do, it's got to be a safe one. We joked about that right after. Like, who's going to be at late night next year? Is it going to be the Mormon Tabernacle Choir? <laughs> you know? Uh, I don't know. I don't know what you do. I think you just you probably skip it altogether. What about Kansas City Sprint Center slash T-Mobile Center legend, Garth Brooks? Do you think, okay, and I don't know if you could land Garth Brooks. He is going on a tour, but he's only... I, say, I think he's coming to Arrowhead in October, so maybe he'll August. be out here. He's, he's, oh. doing, uh, he's doing Arrowhead on August 7th. But I think that is not quite the demographic that you're going for. When you think about the people that you've had, you had Tech 9 you had Lil Yachty, you had Snoop Dogg, so you're probably not going to pivot all the way to, to Garth Brooks, though. If you are looking for a safe choice, that would be the one. So we won't find out until, you know, like the month before if they even do anything like that, but you can go ahead and mark your calendars now, Friday, October 1st for Late Night in the Fog. It is a Wednesday. It is 4 o'clock. It's time for another edition of the NFL Whip Around. Derek, take it away. Yeah! First up, if then... I give you an if scenario. You play it out. You tell me the then. If Jordan Love starts to look amazing in practice, then? It seems like the if may have already started to happen. There were reports yesterday that Jordan Love had a bad day at practice. Rob Demofsky covers the Packers for ESPN. He said that yesterday Jordan Love went 12 of 23 in the 11-on-11 work. Uh, apparently there was like a fourth and seven situation, wide open receiver. Jordan Love just sails the pass right over his head. So if you're the Packers brass or even the coaching staff, and you're really concerned about the idea that you may have seen the last of Aaron Rodgers in a Packers uniform, not a great sign to open up your offseason work. But then today, perhaps the page was turned. Because in today's drills, Jordan Love improved went 20 of 31, including a stretch in which he completed four straight practice passes of at least 30 yards. They did a two-minute drill, and he threw an eight-yard touchdown pass to Alan Lazard. And according to Domovsky, it was so impressive 
that tight ends coach Justin Outen started fanning love at one point, <laughs> signifying just how hot he was. And you know, Justin Outen doesn't just do that for anybody. Oh, no. Is it, is it looking mildly impressive, sort of like a bare minimum expectation for a first-round NFL quarterback in year two? Like, yes. just look mildly impressed. You don't have to look like you're going to take over and be the starting quarterback. You don't you have might. to look like you're going to be, uh, you know, superstar. But just looking like you're competent enough to handle that position in 11-on-11 work and practice, I feel like that's a bare minimum. So the idea that, oh, you should have seen him today. should have seen what Jordan Love was, was cooking up in practice. It's kind of like, all right, well, I guess... He can play quarterback. I guess he's he's the heir apparent to Aaron Rodgers. I feel like this is the Packers just trying to, after yesterday, cover their bases for a couple reasons. One, if Aaron Rodgers does come back, like you might be in a situation where you have to trade Jordan Love, so you want his value to be up. Tell everybody he's good. Tell everybody he's so amazing in practice that you're missing out if you don't trade for him. The other part of this is you just want to get his confidence up because if you don't have Aaron Rodgers, He's going to be the starter week one. I think that's more important than anything because the idea that you're going to be able to take Jordan Love and put him out on the open market and get anything in return for him seems a little far-fetched. You're talking about a guy who was drafted late in the first round and at the time people thought it was a bit of a reach because he was a guy who was thought of as a project quarterback, somebody who wasn't going to be ready to contribute right away. So the idea that you're going to be able to take that kid and sell him to a team for anything of value seems unrealistic to me because any team who would be considering trading for Jordan Love, wouldn't they just say, okay, unless you're going to give me him for a fourth-round pick or a fifth-round pick, I'll just go out and draft a different quarterback next year, and it'll be the one that we want. Yeah, and he'll be under contract for more years on his rookie deal. The only exception, I think, to that, don't you think... If in Jordan Love's rookie year, if there would have been a bunch of stories that would have come out over the course of the season, like, listen, Aaron Rodgers is the guy, but when Jordan Love, oh, man, he is killing it in practice. We can't stop him. Like, if there were all those stories, we, weird stories like that with Patrick Mahomes in practice of him making these crazy throws, right? Yeah. If you heard those stories with Jordan Love, which we didn't, maybe his value would be a little bit there, but do, it's not. Do we know if Aaron Rodgers is still in Hawaii? I have no idea. I got to think he is really enjoying reading these practice reports. Like, oh, 20 of 31. Really, big fella. I guess you're the guy now. It'd be funny if the Packers, like front office and coaches, were leaking all the info to media members when he was doing well, but then Aaron Rodgers was having teammates telling him how he did and was leaking it when he did bad. Right. So that's why, like, one comes out the day after the other. Um, but, yeah, I, I don't – does it mean anything for the Packers? Like, if Jordan Love is amazing for a while, are you more – Willing to trade Aaron Rodgers? No. Okay. I mean, it would have to be a Patrick Mahomes-like situation where you look at him and you say... But even better, because that's replacing Alex Smith. This is replacing an MVP. Right. So be better than Patrick Mahomes. Like, Okay, that's a good question. (laughs) If the Chiefs had Aaron Rodgers instead of Alex Smith, how long are we waiting before Patrick Mahomes starts? I, it may turn into one of those Jimmy Garoppolo situations where you just say this isn't going to work. Yeah, honestly, the answer to that question is they don't draft Patrick Mahomes that soon, right? Yeah, they I mean, wait longer. there's a difference between yeah. trading up to draft a guy at 10 mm-hmm. versus trading up to draft a guy in the late 20s. 
Okay, how about this one? If Aaron Rodgers said he wouldn't guarantee coming back, but it'll be more likely I'll come back if you trade away Jordan Love. You're the Packers, then. Well, then you'd trade Jordan Love, but again, you're not going to get much return for it. But it doesn't guarantee Rodgers coming back. I mean, that's Just more likely. Just more likely. I don't think this is about Jordan Love, though. Do you really think that that's all it is? I mean, I think the Jordan no, Love. No, no. I, I, I think hey. the Jordan Love draft pick signal. Excuse me, sir. I give you the if. This is an if, not okay. a certainty. You okay. tell me the then, sir. Okay, well, then if that's the if, my then is that then Aaron Rodgers is even more petty than we believed him to be. We know there's a level of pettiness with him. That much is certain. But the idea that this isn't about big picture, front office, philosophical, organizational type things. This is simply about the fact that you drafted Jordan Love. If that's it, then man, are you petty. Because you just went out and won MVP. Like, you you proved everybody who could have potentially thought that you were past your prime wrong. You've done it. But that's still not enough. It's like, no, this guy is on the roster, and I hate looking at his stupid face every day. It's like, okay, man, we'll get rid of him. Again, though, like, what are you getting? What are you getting for Jordan Love on the open market? A fourth-round pick? Seriously. Maybe. I think you're probably, I mean, Josh Roseman for a second, which higher rated quarterbacks and maybe you get a third. I don't know. Um, but in this what? hypothetical situation, the Packers have absolutely zero leverage Yeah, that's as true. Well. So uh, who knows at that point? And the funny thing is it wouldn't even guarantee him coming back. Okay. How about this? If you were the Packers and the Jaguars offer you Trevor Lawrence for Aaron Rodgers, Jordan Love, and a first, then. Hmm. Again, the Jordan Love wouldn't matter that much. So that's the least valuable of the assets. You get Aaron Rodgers, and you assume you're going to get a MVP caliber quarterback for the next how many years? Two, three? Yeah, because he's not somebody who I look at like Tom Brady who's going to play till his mid-40s. Like He seems to be a guy who's not totally invested in football that way, where it's like all he has. He's got so many interests and in, in skills outside of the sport that... I could just see him sort of retiring and fading off into the sunset or doing movies or something. I don't know. But you still get a guy who immediately makes you a, a Super Bowl contender, right? Aaron Rodgers on the Jaguars are, what, one of the top five teams in the AFC? Maybe, yeah. Come on. I mean, just because you have Aaron Rodgers, but, like, that roster is not great. It's good enough. Yeah, with Aaron Rodgers. With Aaron Rodgers. And in the first-round pick, which you would assume is going to be fairly valuable because you just took Aaron Rodgers off the Packers, right? Mm-hmm. Flip side of that is Trevor Lawrence could be a franchise pillar for 15 years. Could not be. He could be terrible, yep. though, too. I think you take it. I think you take the deal. I think both sides have to take it. It would, be, it would be tougher for the Jaguars to take it than the Packers. The Packers are saying, well, Aaron Rodgers wants out anyway. Yeah, but also, like, there's a standpoint of me, like, viewing this as, holy cow, you had to go with Rodgers, Love, and a first for Trevor Lawrence? Why couldn't we have just given up Rodgers for Trevor Lawrence? Because you have to ask yourself this, too. Halfway through last season, if, if, the, if the Jaguars answered the phone and the Packers said, hey, we'll give you Aaron Rodgers for the first pick, you're saying, done, 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 right. done. Okay, think about this. If I were to give you over-under, or not even over-under, 
Who wins more MVPs in their career from this point forward? Aaron Rodgers or Trevor Lawrence? Aaron Rodgers. Aaron Rodgers. And so, yes, you get less years out of him. Like, Trevor Lawrence could not be MVP but still be good. But then if you just get in a situation where Aaron Rodgers retires, it's not like it's Aaron Rodgers four years versus 15 years of Trevor Lawrence. It's Aaron Rodgers four years plus I can draft a quarterback for those next 11 years and hope one works out. Yeah, I wonder if NFL teams have trade charts for things like that. <laughs> for for trades that unrealistic. Mm. All right, on to the next segment. Are they good? Julio Jones edition. The Titans, now that they have Julio Jones, are they good? Were they good before? I think the Titans were good, but I think it was a little bit overblown how realistic like their, their title chances were last year. They won a lot of close games. I think they're a... They're luckier than they are great. Like, to me, the Titans are a 10-6 and six team, which is a good team, but you're not on the level of the Chiefs or the Ravens or whoever you think are the legit contenders in the AFC. So, the addition of a, a top-five wide receiver when healthy certainly improves you as a team, but how many wins is Julio Jones worth? How many wins is a, is a top-tier wide receiver worth? Across the course of a 17-game season. One, maybe? So, it doesn't move the needle as much as it sounds like. In like a fantasy perspective, it makes it exciting. In terms of watchability, like the Titans are one of the teams you're going to want to watch now because of all the star power they have on offense. Fantasy football players are going to love the Titans. You have, what, three top, like, two or three-round picks? Like, they're going to be one of the top red zone teams. NFL Sunday ticket. You're going to want to watch them every Sunday. But... Are they anywhere close to as good as the Chiefs? No, because it comes down to two things. Your defense is still pretty lousy, even though I know you went out and, and spent a lot of offseason acqu- uh, of your capital capital on, on defensive players. But you still have Ryan Tannehill at quarterback. And while efficient, I'm not sure he's of that ilk. So the Titans are good, but they were good before. Yeah, I would agree with that. You know, maybe this is the difference in... Um, if a team like the Jaguars comes up or the Texans turn around, I don't really see that happening. Maybe the Colts are really good. Maybe this move is the difference in you winning the division versus being a wild card. So I thought you were good-ish before. I'll say you're good for sure now, but I still don't know that you're even like a top two or three team in the AFC. I think you're in that conversation, which we'll get to a little later. Are they good? Atlanta Falcons, now without Julio Jones. No. Uh, I mean, the, the, the Falcons had a rough offseason. There's no way about it. And they were already in a tough position, so you could, could have kind of seen this coming. You hired Arthur Smith, um, the offensive coordinator from Tennessee, who... Yeah, who won the trade? <laughs> getting Arthur Smith or Julio Jones? I'd probably give the, the slight edge to Tennessee there. And listen, Arthur Smith may end up being a good coach, but now the, the, one of the biggest reasons you would have wanted to come to Atlanta, walked out the door and joined your former team. You're still in cap hell. You spent a fourth overall pick on a tight end. You lost um, Alex Mack, one of your veteran offensive linemen. The Falcons were a bad team last year, and they got worse. So, and what, on what planet are they a good team now? Like, if, if they are good, if they're good now, tell me how you got from point A to point B. See, okay, here's the thing. Part of this goes into what your record could possibly be. That can enhance, you know, how you view a team, good or not. Um, Certainly, I would think the division favorites will be the Buccaneers. There are questions with the Saints because you don't have Drew Brees anymore. 
there are questions with the Panthers because they weren't very good last year. Is it that unrealistic that the Falcons could get a resurgent years from a few guys and you signed uh, Dante Fowler and he gives you double-digit sacks on the outside and all of a sudden you're second place in your division competing for a wild-card spot? Maybe you're good, but no, I, I don't think they're good. They're probably around like seven or eight-win team. I'm glad you I'm glad you spent some time uh, out, outwardly trying to convince yourself that they're going to be good only to land on the conclusion that they are still, in fact, <laughs> bad. Uh, Julio Jones and A.J. Brown's fantasy value. Are they good? Well, A.J. Brown's fantasy value took a, a hit in the form of you can't convince yourself that he's number one now. Like, if, you're, if you were looking at him as, like, a second-round pick to be your number one wide receiver, well, at the very least, we know he's not going to be a number one. He can still be very valuable, but... I can't imagine his production is going to go up with the addition of a guy, again, when healthy, who is going to command 10 to 12 to 15 targets a game. I mean, that's who Julio Jones is. Now, that was in a different offense with a different quarterback, so we'll see what it's like for the Titans. But the Titans, what we do know about, even though they lost their offensive coordinator too in Arthur Smith, who actually went to Falcons, so it's kind of confusing, right, the, all of the moving parts here. We still know that Derrick Henry is going to be the focal point of that offense. We know that you lost Jonu Smith and Corey Davis. That's over 1,000 yards between the two of them. So it's not about trying to find new uh, targets and, and throws and plays for Julio Jones. You're basically going to absorb all the ones that left in free agency to the Jets and to the Patriots. So I still think both of those guys have tremendous value. I could see this being uh, an Adam Thielen, Stephon Diggs, or Adam Thielen... Justin Jefferson type situation, but I don't think that team's going to pass the ball nearly as much as you need to for both of them to retain that sort of value. So both of their value goes down from where it would be had they not made the deal for Julio Jones. Agreed. Better than Ron Rivera. We did this last week. NBC Sports Edge released their coaching rankings for 2021. Ron Rivera was pretty much in the middle, number 17. First up this week, better than Ron Rivera, Mike Zimmer at number 13 on the list. So I saw a couple of weeks ago they had the odds of the first NF- the first coach to be fired. They do this every offseason, right? right? Who's going to be the first NFL coach to be fired? And, and Mike Zimmer, oddly enough, was near the top of that list. Like He was in the top five in terms of most likely to be the first coach fired. And I don't understand that. Zimmer has been pretty impressive. In his time at, in Minnesota, three playoff appearances, and you've gotten wins each of the last two times. It was a down year last year. You are working with Kirk Cousins, but uh, I don't really view him as being on the hot seat. Now, he is a little bit older, yet, okay, I don't even really care about this question. Have you seen Mike Zimmer's girlfriend? <laughs> no. So... Mike Zimmer... I mean, he's not on who's older, so you don't have to worry about spoiling... He's dating like a Maxim model. No way. How old is Mike Zimmer? He's like 64. Okay. Her name is... Uh, Elizabeth Audrey, I believe. She is... I think she's from like South Africa or something. Oh, no, no, no. Katrina Elizabeth. Katrina Elizabeth. She was on the cover of Maxim in July of 2018. She's a smoke show. And anybody who can pull a babe like that, I think, is going to command respect in a locker room. 
We just need to talk more about the fact that Mike Zimmer is dating a supermodel. And he's 64 years old. Well, we just talked about it. So we did it. So, uh, and he's a good coach. So I would take him over Ron Rivera for that fact alone. Yeah, I think Mike Zimmer is a very good coach. Uh, Brian Flores, two spots ahead of Ron Rivera on the coaching list at number 15. Brian Flores has done quite a bit with very little during his time in Miami. And it all started in year one. You won five games on what I think a lot of people thought was far and away the worst roster in the NFL. And then last year, you go 10-6 and six while sort of piecing together the quarterback position. I mean, you drafted Tua, didn't really work out. That part left a little bit to be desired. Like, it felt like you you sort of were dipping your toes in the water of handing the keys over to Tua while still trying to compete for a playoff spot with Ryan Fitzpatrick. This year, that's going to be different. This year, you are going to hand it over to Tua, and I think we'll probably get a better picture of exactly who Flores is. But he is thought of as being one of the best defensive minds in the NFL. You talk about from one year to the next, going from being the worst defense in the NFL statistically in terms of scoring to sixth. 32nd to sixth is such a massive jump, it almost doesn't seem possible. I I kind of expect the, the Dolphins to be competitive as long as Flores is down there. So uh, I'll take Brian Flores there, especially if it's, uh, if it's like a team trying to get to the next level. Mm-hmm. Like Ron Rivera at this point in his career isn't somebody you're going to maybe hire because you want your team to get to a Super Bowl. He's more of come in and sort of clean things up a little bit, which it feels like he was tasked to do when he got hired in Washington. Yeah, if I had to rank those three, I would actually have Brian Flores the highest, so I'll take him above him, which actually leads into our next segment, a new segment on the NFL Whip Round. Kiss, Mary kill. Ah, Jesse Newell's going to be very jealous. Yes, he is. AFC contenders. The Titans, now that they have Julio Jones, Baltimore, or Buffalo. So if you have the Chiefs number one in the AFC, this is probably the, the battle for number two. Kiss, Mary Kill between okay. those three. I don't need the whip again. I get it. Um, I understand the game of Kiss, Mary Kill. Okay, so um, AFC contenders, I am going to kiss the Buffalo Bills. Mm. The Bills are kind of in a situation where the Ravens were at last year. Came out of nowhere, became one of the best teams in the AFC, didn't quite get it done in the playoffs, and now people kind of wonder, okay, was that a flash in the pan? Can Josh Allen do it again? We'll find out. So I'm not married to the idea of the Bills being a mainstay in the AFC. I'm going to marry the Ravens. Wow. Heading into the season last year, we thought the Ravens were the most complete offense or the most complete roster in the NFL. Like they didn't have any holes at anywhere on that team. What ended up happening is the offense just stagnated a bit from where it was the year before. They didn't have anybody who was a major downfield threat. They've certainly addressed that offensively this offseason. You go out and sign Sammy Watkins in the draft. You take two wide receivers uh, in uh, Tylen Wallace and Rashad Bateman from Minnesota. So I'm excited to see what's going to happen. J.K. Dobbins probably takes over as your workhorse back, so to speak. I like the Ravens. I think Lamar Jackson has a bounce back year. So that means I'm killing the Titans for the reasons I mentioned earlier. The Titans are an exciting team. I just have questions about Ryan Tannehill being able to sort of take them to that next level. They're also the type of team that I wouldn't be shocked if they did go 12-4. and But when it gets to the playoffs, I'm not expecting them to be able to compete with the firepower that some of the other teams in the conference have. Yeah, I I think the only ones I would switch, I would... Well, I might... 
Yeah, I'd marry the Ravens just because you have the head coach factor there. So I actually think I agree 100%. Okay, how about uh, off-season trade additions? Julio Jones to the Titans. Orlando Brown to the Chiefs. Matthew Stafford to the Rams. Kiss, Mary kill. Okay. Um, I'm going to kiss Orlando Brown to the Chiefs. I think in a vacuum, that's a massive acquisition to get a Pro Bowl caliber left tackle. We saw the way the offensive line fell apart in the Super Bowl. So to go get a young guy, no injury history, Pro Bowl caliber left tackle, that's huge. The reason I'm kissing it instead of marrying it, we don't know what the contract situation is. I would marry it if if there was a long-term deal in place. There's not right now. The Chiefs don't have a ton of wiggle room cap-wise, so I'm kissing you for the time being. It's sort of like I'm I'm heading to first base with Orlando Brown to the Chiefs, but like if he starts, yeah, you're gonna start a wide turn. If he starts first. moving right. his hand down my waist, I'm gonna push it away and say I'm not ready for that yet. Meanwhile, I am ready to take the next step and take the plunge with Matt Stafford to the Rams. I think this is a major upgrade for one of the top three play callers in the NFL. For Sean McVay, you get to go from Jared Goff to Matt Stafford. Like that to me is a match made in heaven for both of those parties. I'm excited to see what that's going to look like. I think the Rams should be taken seriously as a legitimate Super Bowl contender in in one of the top two or three teams from the NFC. I know for a lot of people it's going to be Bucks, Packers, everybody else. I think the Rams are right there, which means I'm killing Julio Jones to the Titans. For no other reason than I it's mean, not as good of a fit as the it's other just, two. It, it, right? well, it's not as big of an impact yeah. to bring in a wide receiver as it is uh, protecting your franchise quarterback in the case of Orlando Brown or going out and getting a quarterback who can take you to the next level in Matt Stafford. Last segment of the day, who is older? Baltimore offensive tackle, Jawan James, or San Francisco wide receiver, Travis Benjamin? I'll go Travis Benjamin is older. Benjamin 31, James 29. Pittsburgh quarterback Mason Rudolph or Miami corner Xavier Howard. Mm. I just saw Mason Rudolph said today that uh, he wants to be a starting quarterback yes, in 2022. Good luck, Bubby. I'm going to say Mason Rudolph's about 26, and I'll say Xavier Howard's probably right around there. I'll say uh, I'll say Xavier Howard's older. Xavier Howard, 27, Mason Rudolph, 25. Oh, okay. I was all over it. COVID vaccine truther, Montez Sweat, <laughs> or New York Jets corner, Lamar Jackson. Different Lamar Jackson. Yes, different Lamar Jackson. Okay. I'm going to say Montez Sweat, who said today he's, he doesn't like that Ron, that the, the Washington football team is bringing in vaccine experts and that he hasn't taken the vaccine because he's still waiting for more information. So I'm still waiting for more information on who he's willing to listen uh, to information from. Montez Sweat was drafted, what, just like three years ago? So I'm going to guess he's like 25. Uh, I don't know anything about uh, the the cornerback, Lamar Jackson. So I'm going to say that's because he's young. I'll say Montez Sweat is older. Montez Sweat, 24. Lamar Jackson, 23. Seattle wide receiver DK Metcalf or Detroit tight end Elise Mack. Mm. I don't know anything about Elise Mack. Is there a nugget or anything interesting? Tight end. Okay. On the Lions. 
pretty cool. He's in the NFL. Yeah, that yeah. is. Congrats to him, by the way. We forgot to mention that earlier when he got drafted. Uh, I'll say, who's the first guy? DK Metcalf. DK you know Metcalf. Him. He's like 24. I'll say he's older. Ah, perfectly gone. DK is 23. Elise Mack is 24. Denver running back Melvin Gordon or Kansas City fullback Michael Burton. Oh, wow. Chiefs player I don't even, I've never yeah. heard of. Practice squad guy? No, fullback. I mean, uh, Anthony Sherman retired, so somebody's got to take the role. Okay. Okay. They draft him, sign him. Signed him. Undrafted free agent? I have no idea. Rookie? Tell me. Okay, I think he is. I think he is. So I'm going to say, uh, who's the first guy again? Melvin Gordon. Melvin Gordon is like 27. I'll say he's older. Melvin Gordon's 28. Michael Burton is 29. And it, it leaves a bad taste in your mouth to miss two to end it, but I still finished with a winning record, and that's all that matters. Yeah! That's your NFL Whip Round. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Yesterday, we talked about the recent report from Pete Thamel of Yahoo Sports that there is more growing belief that a 12-team college football playoff is now the presumed favorite if and when the college football playoff does expand, which it's important to note that there won't be any changes for at least the next two seasons. So this coming year and the year after that, we know at the very least, is still going to be a four-team playoff. Now, beyond that, it wouldn't shock me whatsoever if if a decision is reached when this working group and the College Football Board of Managers, when, when all of these groups meet and, and ultimately make a decision about the future of the playoff, it wouldn't shock me if they say, okay, and then we're going to do this in five years or in six years. Now, television rights are going to be a big part of that. Right now, ESPN has all the rights to the college football playoff, so if they can strike a deal before that deal ends, nobody else is really going to be able to come in and try and poach that away, which I would imagine other television companies would want to because that's a, a very lucrative piece of sports real estate. People watch bowl games. like, And, and that's, that's just it, too. When you talk about the expansion, it's not just about the teams. It's about the games and how would the format of the playoffs work. The New Year's Six Bowls are all in the same television deal as the college football playoff itself. And as you see year after year, a lot of those bowls are sort of rolled into college football playoff playing games. Those bowls aren't going to want to be neglected in the sake of college football playoff expansion. Right? That's been a big point of contention uh, with the Rose Bowl, for instance, right? of them constantly trying to lock in deals outside of the playoff to ensure that they don't get lesser teams. Because how many times does that happen? Where because of the college football playoff, the Rose Bowl doesn't necessarily get the Pac-12 champion versus the Big Ten champion. They'll get a second-place team versus a second-place team, and they don't want that. Now, the Rose Bowl is the Rose Bowl, and it's always going to be around, and it's always going to be relevant. But I think that's the next big question. If we are going to talk about a 12-team playoff, like, what is that going to look like in terms of games? And there have been discussions that, that Pete Thamel and others have sort of wrote about. Some people are, are more so just floating out ideas. But you would effectively have to give teams buys. And you're not going to have two rounds of games at all these different neutral sites. It's just not feasible. So 
if you're playing the first round of games, let's say you've got the first four teams are all on a bye, so that would put what eight versus or five versus twelve for a first round game. Is that a bowl game site, or would the next round of games be a bowl game site? Do you put those games at home? And if so, you know the teams like Alabama or Clemson who are sitting there at one and two and have the week off. I'd imagine they're going to be pretty envious of the fact that while yes, they're happy to get a week of rest and they're happy that they're already. Uh, pushed into the semifinal round, so to speak, of the playoff. They're also missing out on a ton of money from not getting to have an extra home game against a marquee opponent on national television and all of the ticket sales that you would... I mean, think about how how much those tickets would sell for, for essentially a postseason game at home in college football, which doesn't exist right now. Right. And for those types of programs, you're not going to want to miss out on that. And I'm sure the, the college football playoff committee is going to talk about, because this is what happens in big business sports. They talk about how difficult things are as a means to not do anything. And hopefully that's not going to be the case, because this isn't the NCAA that we're talking about. They're the ones with the, we usually reserve that sort of criticism for. But all of these hangups are things that are going to have an impact on, on the ability to get a deal done. Because I think everybody wants to expand. It's now basically the haggling over the finer details of how to get it done. Honestly, why not have bowl games before the playoff? That'd be another valuation tool. Like, obviously, there's a lot that needs to be done with the schedule, you know? Um, And that's whether there is a 12-game playoff with bowl games, without bowl games, whatever it is. Because you can't have... If you were a five seed to win the college football playoff, there'd be four extra games. So now you're talking about a 17-game season if you played in the conference championship, too. That, that's way too much. So do you eliminate conference championships? Do you eliminate some of these early games? And if you do that, if you eliminate, let's say they tell everybody you're going to play, everybody's going to play an eight-game conference season, everybody's only going to play one non-conference game or two non-conference games. Then you can allow yourself a bowl game at the end of the season, and then you just say, this is going to be part of the evaluation tool. This is going to be part of the evaluation process. All these bowls, you still get your thing. We still get the Pac-12 versus Big Ten champion. And then that'll help us seed what we're about to see between 1 through 12. I think that'd be really interesting. So you're saying you would effectively go into the bowl games not knowing what the seeding is, but still knowing who the teams are? Um, I mean... Or is that still... like? Are you saying that the, the, the final ranking won't come out correct, until, until after, after the, the bowl games? Yes, and you would have to move the bowls up, right? Like, I'm not saying we stick with having, oh, the whatever big bowl is... Six weeks after the conference, but I don't think no, they're going to like that up. either. I don't. I don't think the bowl games are going to like being essentially pushed back from the main event. Well, you have the like New Year's six ones; those can still be on New Year's Day, right? And that'll be the last day of bowls, January first, and then you start the playoff a week after. I mean, at that point, they'd be having a, a month off, and then you can do a game the week after. I don't know. That's just an option, but. Maybe the best way to do it is just as simple to say, let's just pick what bowl games we want to exist, and they'll be the ones of the playoff. I mean, is there going to be any interest if there's a 12-team playoff in bowl games outside of that? No, not if the bowl games aren't aren't wrapped in, right? Because it's already become, in the age of the college football playoff, playoff or bust. Whereas in the BCS era, like, and it depends because I know the bowls rotate, right? But... Going to those New Year's Six Bowls, they don't mean as much. We don't talk about them as much. Texas A&M played North Carolina in the Orange Bowl this year. Iowa State played Oregon 
in the Fiesta Bowl this year. Those bowls were not wrapped into the college football playoff. The ones that were in this year were the Rose Bowl and the Sugar Bowl. Just by default, not being a part of the college football playoff, like Iowa State versus Oregon, Oregon was ranked 25th, man. Like, who cares? Texas A&M versus North Carolina. Like, those games have lost luster if you're not wrapped in in that given year. And those and the, and the, the, the Oregon, they know that. Like, the games, they know that this game doesn't mean as much because there are no implications of potentially going to a championship. Like the Peach Bowl. Georgia versus Cincinnati. That's number nine versus number eight. That should mean something, right? To get the number nine team and the number eight team matched up, that should be a great game. And it was a great game. But the implications mean everything. So I think that's going to be a big part of it, is if you are going to expand all of these bowl games are going to want a piece of it. They're all going to want to be a part of it. And ESPN, if it is ESPN who re-ups the broadcasting rights, which I would assure they w- uh, assume they would, and I would assume it's going to be for more money this time around. I think it would kind of behoove them to do that as well. They're going to say, okay, we're going to buy all of this. Can we meld it into one bigger product and still make it make sense? Yeah, I still, I don't know. That That's making me think that that idea to do the bowl games after the regular season and just say this is going to be part of the season might be the best way. You still have all the bowl games, and then you could be a team who, you know, you're ranked 16th, and you're playing in whatever, the Holiday Bowl or something, and normally that would be, oh, I mean, it's cool to play in the Holiday Bowl, but how much does it mean over the course of the season? Now you're like, well, if we blow out this team we're playing in the Holiday Bowl, maybe we can get into the top 12. I I think that would be very interesting. Don't you think the the idea of expanding – is going to calm a lot of nerves, particularly in a in a conference like the Big 12. Not just from year to year, we want to be more represented. We don't want it to be Oklahoma or bust. But because of that, you know, if, like last year, Iowa State was ranked 10th in a 12-team playoff. They would have made the playoff. Yeah. You may not have given them much of a chance to win a game, but they would have made the playoff. All of a sudden, Big 12 doesn't feel like little brother. Yeah, we got two teams into the college football playoff. We have multiple teams competing for a championship. When expansion talks come up here over the next couple of years, or conference realignment, I should say, the idea that now you've got more seats at the table, at the championship table, even if the SEC does too, right? It's not like you're taking seats from anybody else, but that there's just more food to go around. I think it's going to go a long ways towards calming a lot of nerves for the programs like Oklahoma and Texas who for so long have had to feel like they're doing the lion's share of the work for the conference. Well, that's because there's there's so few opportunities, and you are one of the only traditional powers in college football. And that's the way the college football playoff is operated, is you only get to compete if you are one of the traditional powers. This would remove that to where you no longer have to be one of those types of programs, therefore... Maybe you feel a little bit more comfortable with your standing and your future in this conference. Yeah, I still just don't love the 12. It just, I think, creates more headaches. But to your point, um, if you go back and look at all the final college football playoff rankings since it's been around, since 2014, that gives you seven seasons of data, the Big 12 would have gotten one team in every year, and they would have gotten multiple teams in uh, five of the seven seasons, including 2014, they would have got three teams in. And they had Baylor, TCU, and uh, Kansas State was in the top 12 as well. So when you look at, like, over the course of that time, that seven years of data, the ACC, Big 12, and Pac-12, they'd all be even 
in college football playoff appearances. So it's not as if the Big 12 would be – because right now ACC is getting one in every year, whether it's Clemson or when it was Florida State early. You know, Miami's a team that would – or North Carolina are teams that would have been in the mix for the ACC um, in years past. But the Big 12 and the ACC would have equal representation over this seven-year period. So And what's it at at now by conference? I know the ACC is tied with – Yeah, the Big 12 and Pac-12. No, right now with with college football playoff appearances, mm-hmm. the ACC and the SEC both have eight. Yeah, I mean Clemson's carrying the water there. I mean with automatic bids, obviously you're going to get, you know, the the raw numbers are going to go up, but it's still going to be about the at larges. Right, and I guess the ACC is counting Notre Dame there, which I guess technically counts. Um, I did not count Notre Dame into this list because they're not a member of the ACC, even though they were in the ACC last. So, like year. right now, the Pac-12 has two, and you're telling me it would be even. Pac-12 has two: yes. Oregon and Washington. Because the Pac-12, most of their years, they're having schools who are in that, yeah, you know, seven to twelve range. The only year, you know, it was interesting. You mentioned Oregon was ranked 25th, won the Pac-12. I would have thought that would happen more often, where it wasn't 25th, but somebody upset and won their conference title and they were number 14, right? They were number 13. This was the only year that's happened. You mentioned Clemson carrying the water, but there's no conference that that's not the case in. You can't name one. Yeah, I mean, the Big Ten might be the closest. Ohio State has four of their five appearances. Correct. If, If you did this as a... As a full twelve, though it would be very balanced. Like I agree, right. but that's the point. That's what that's what we're saying. That's the point of all of this. Because even if you want to act like it's oh well, Clemson's doing all the work in the ACC. They are. The ACC has eight appearances. Clemson has six of them. The SEC has eight appearances. Guess what? Alabama has six of them. The Big Ten has five. Ohio State has four of them. The Big Twelve has four. They're all Oklahoma. And they haven't won a damn game. And the Pac-12 has only two, Oregon and Washington. So, there are haves and have-nots in college football. And that much isn't going to change. You know, we talked to Kevin Flaherty about this yesterday. Like, will this potentially open up recruiting? And he seems to not, he seems to be a little bit hesitant that all of a sudden this is going to level the playing field. And I agree, like, Alabama and... In Clemson and LSU and Ohio State and Oklahoma, like they're still all gonna be able to get more of those the difference five star between kids. Getting the best recruiting class and getting all of the top kids, right? Well, look at look at college basketball. Mm-hmm. If you just want to cross compare the two sports, there is more balance in recruiting. You're more likely to go out and get a blue chip recruit as a non traditional power in basketball than you are in football. And that's for a variety of reasons. First off, it's easier to win a championship in basketball than it is football. I mean, it's a 64-team tournament. Single elimination. Anybody can beat anybody. I think the flip side of that is, in basketball, you're only there for one year. So, it's not as much about how are you going to develop me over three years. In football, like I need an an NFL-caliber training program. I need the best coaches. I need the best system that's going to put me on display. Well, what if now just one of those pieces of the equation is altered a little bit where, yeah, you still want the best 
coaches. You still want the best system. But if you have other programs that are now able to compete for titles, well, that changes everything. Because what that will do, it's not just about recruits are automatically going to flock to your program. It's that you go to college football championships, guess what? You get more money. You get more resources. You get to build those training programs. You get to hire better coaches who say, I can go to a place like Iowa State or Cincinnati and improve my resume because I'm going to be playing on a big stage that was not possible in the four-team format. Yeah, and and I think you hear the argument sometimes. I know Kevin said this yesterday um, that, you know, is the 11 or 12 seed really going to make noise in the college football playoff? Probably not. But, you know, it's not about can the 11 or 12 seed beat number one Alabama. It's about can they make a run and do they have a fair shot at it? And obviously the fair shot, as I mentioned yesterday, college football, you need a sport where if you do everything in your power to win, you win every game, you have to be able to have a chance to win it all. But in the NCAA tournament, like nobody was picking Loyola Chicago to win it all. But everybody knew Loyola Chicago could take out a few teams who could win it all. Illinois might have been a team who could have won it all, but they took them out. And so yeah, and it, and it goes back to and it goes back to what we said earlier with the New Year's Six games. Like Iowa State played Oregon in a New Year's Six game that nobody really cared about. If that game was a first round matchup, or it wouldn't have been that matchup. But you get my point. If that if those teams were playing in a first round game against the college football playoff, all of a sudden they're games that matter. All of a sudden. Iowa State is playing in a much more significant game that maybe they have a much lower chance of winning, but for them as a program, you think they wouldn't take that? They wouldn't just take the exposure and the idea that you're playing for a championship over just simply playing in a New Year's Six Bowl where you have a chance to win and take home a trophy? Like that exposure and just the idea, the concept of playing for a championship, that's what these teams want, and that's how programs can level the playing field because right now it's not, and the halves are going to stay halves, and they're going to keep eating. But there's enough food for everybody to go around. And I think the college football playoff committee and the, the 17 different boards and, and groups of people are, are starting to recognize that. He's Derek Johnson. I'm Nick Schwartz. Two hours down, one to go. This is Rock Chuck Sports Talk.